0: Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful again for this time that we can come to meet with you. And Lord, thank you for the reminder of that song. Indeed, uh, there are so many others that need to know about Jesus. Lord, may you uh, equip us, enable us, Empower us to be bold indeed to reach people for, the, the, um, for your gospel, for your kingdom. And we pray for your spirit now as we open your word. It is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to invite you to take out your study guides uh, inside your bulletin uh, for today's message. Um, as in times past, uh, you will see the PowerPoint on the screen and the words inside. Or rather, the words that are underlined are the words that go inside the blanks. So uh, if you can put that PowerPoint up, that would be fantastic. There you go. Um, notice the uh, title on the screen, The Trinity and Adventism, and the subtitle, The Son of God. Uh, today, we're starting a three-part series on this issue of the Trinity and Adventism. Um, some of you know, of course, that one of the, th- the things we do in our church when a person is uh, joining our church, whether it is uh, by baptism or by profession of faith, which is when a person that is from a different denomination wants to uh, come into the church and become a Seventh day Adventist, after go- having gone through Bible studies, we usually, um, uh, you know, they come up front and we read baptismal vows. You've seen this, right? Uh, we, uh, our, our church manual has 13 baptismal vows that we read, you know, and, and, and it's important, obviously, that a person, when they become a Seventh-day Adventist, they obviously are familiar with what uh, the Bible teaches, what, what we as Seventh-day Adventists believe, and, and of course, we're not the only denomination that does this. There are other denominations that have this, something similar, that you agree with the tenets of that basic, uh, the basic tenets of that denomination, and so uh, this is something that we do. Um, and as, as you know, we ask the questions and the person will you know, raise their hand. Yes, I understand. And I, I, and I agree with that particular doctrine. Um, but uh, one thing that I've uh, found is that while, you know, you, you made those vows when you were baptized, accepted by a profession of faith, um, a good reminder, a good refresher is always good. At the same time, I found that even those that have in the past uh, said yes, I, uh, I agree with that. Uh, I understand that baptismal vow, that of a particular doctrine. In reality, they don't. And they don't understand it. Sometimes, in some cases, they don't even agree with it, even though they've made, you know, they've taken the vow that they have. And so, uh, uh, this is the reason. One of the things that I've done over the, the time that I've been here is I, in, in, in the sermons that I preached, is trying to cover. What these baptismal vows say. So we've talked about um, salvation, righteousness by faith, and the second coming, and the Sabbath. These are all things that are addressed in the baptismal vows. Today we're going to uh, look at the first vow. Uh, you notice the first vow on the screen reads, or asks the question, do you believe that there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a unity of three co-eternal persons? This is the vow that we, the first vow that we ask the person that is being baptized or accepted by profession agrees with. And and so this is, in in essence, what we Seventh-day Adventists believe regarding the Trinity. The Trinity, and and the Trinity, the belief in the Trinity, is part of our 28 fundamental beliefs. Okay? Now, now you would think that, that... that it's clear, uh, most, I, I think most denominations, most Christian denominations in general believe in the Trinity. And so it, it may seem clear to us, okay, well, you know, we as Seventh-day Adventists too believe in the Trinity, but as we'll see here in a little bit, just because you say you believe in the Trinity doesn't mean you, be, you believe in the same thing. You don't necessarily believe in the same thing. Uh, But again, you think it's clear, but unfortunately, there are a, a number of people that are, you know, even in our own church, within Adventism, that no longer believe in the Trinity. Yes, say it isn't so. Even though uh, 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 one of our 28 fundamental beliefs is the belief in the Trinity is the first baptismal vow that we take when we're baptized, there are a growing number of people in our denomination that are what we call anti-Trinitarians, not only here in America, but as I've talked to some of you, even in in other parts of the world, places where you come from, that you've seen this movement increasing, this anti-Trinitarian movement. It's out there, and it's great and it's great. And great. Let me give you an example. Um, a few weeks ago, we had a few visitors in our church, young men that, I've pointed, that I actually pointed out. They, uh, well, they were missionaries. I call them missionaries from Indiana. They, they're Seventh-day Adventists. They came to the Nashville area. And, and the reason they came here is because they felt convicted to uh, share a spirit of prophecy uh, material with our church and... and you know, with the community in Nashville. They were just going to be here at a weekend. And you may wonder, well, why, why would they travel all the way from Indiana to Nashville to share Spirit of Prophecy books? Well, as it turns out, they, uh, they were convicted. Uh, some of you know that recently there has been some art or writings published from Ellen White's recently because they haven't been published since 20, before 2015 regarding a vision Mrs. White had about a ball of fire coming on Nashville. Some of you have probably heard this, okay? And remember last year we ran into some issues with that because there was a group of people that made this uh, a newspaper article that interpreted this ball of fire to be a a, a a nuclear attack by Muslims and that caught a bit of a ruckus here in, in the Nashville. We had to issue some statements distancing ourselves from that. Well... Uh, this group, of course, they didn't ally, ally themselves with those that interpreted the ball of fire to be a, 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 a nuclear attack, but they still believe the issue. There's, there's a, this is a vision that Mrs. White has that she says it's on Nashville, and so they they brought material and they say, Pastor, you want to give this out? And I said, Well, listen, I'm familiar enough with this. Um, we've had some issues with that. Leave me what you have, and and, and and we'll see from we'll take it from there. Well, they left me three DVDs, and I looked at them. And as it turns out, two of the three EWDs were about uh, this anti-Trinitarian sentiment. They wanted to share this with the church. They wanted to share this with everybody else. So there is a growing number of anti-Trinitarian movement, unfortunately, in our church. So it's important that we understand what we believe and why we believe it. Amen? Now notice that a, a belief in the divinity personality Unity and equality of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit does not, nest, it does not um, itself make one a Trinitarian because even non-Trinitarians can accept the existence of more than one divine person. This may be new to you. Certainly it was new to me because mostly, most of the time I thought, well, if a person doesn't believe in the Trinity, they don't believe that Jesus was divine. But that's not necessarily true. In fact, from the material that I got from these young men, that's one of the things they spend time explaining, that they do believe that Jesus is divine, even though he was, um, well, he didn't exist at some point in history. Um, They'll explain, and I'll I'll go more more into that in a little bit, but they'll explain that creation or to be created and to be begotten are two different things. This is how they see it. So Jesus wasn't created; he was begotten. But the point is, he was—he had a beginning. He had a beginning, but still, he was brought forth, and they believe that he is divine. So notice again that just because you're anti-trinitarian or they are anti-trinitarian doesn't mean that they don't believe in the divinity of Jesus. They actually—some of them actually do. But notice that the distinctive teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity is specific. There is one God, and that one God is a unity of three persons. This is what we Seventh-day Adventists believe, friends. One God, the unity of three eternal persons. Okay? Now, several years ago, I, um, this was in my previous district, I was having a conversation with a, a man, a young man, a friend, and who was a member of, of my church, and he was honest. He said to me, Pastor, you know, I no longer believe in the Trinity. And this is a serious issue because, again, it is one of our 28 fundamental beliefs. And so I told him, listen, let's talk about this. Let's, uh, let's study the subject together, see if we can come to some sort of agreement. And so we did. We spent about six months going back and forth studying together. Now, he, he, he was a smart man. He knew his Bible, knew the Spirit of Prophecy, knew a lot of history, church history. And, and so he would send me his resources, videos, sermons, material, and I would send him what I had and all that, back and forth. We were going, talking, and, and, and finally, at, around six months, we weren't really going anywhere. And so I told him, listen, we're, we're not going anywhere here. Um, I, I did not convince him of, of, the, of the biblical uh, trinity. He did not convince me that the that trinity was not biblical. And I said, listen, we're going to have to agree to disagree here. However, you are a member of this church, and one of the 28 fundamental beliefs is that you believe in the Trinity. So what are you going to do about that? Well, I'm glad that he was honest enough to say, well, Pastor, I've been thinking about this, and I believe that I'm going to ask the church to remove me from membership because I no longer believe in in one of the 28 fundamental beliefs. By the way, I applaud him for this, because not everybody would do that. In fact, unfortunately, a lot of these offshoot movements that are happening out there within Adventism are happening, and they still want to call themselves Adventists because they want to work from within. They say, I want to change the church from within. Now he decided. Well, this is what I want to do. Now, normally, of course, as you know, uh, when we do something like that and remove somebody from membership, we have a business meeting, and in the business meeting we t- talk about these things, and, and the vote is taken, and so on. And so, what was surprising to me was that uh, the, the, the the reaction of some in the church, including some leaders who didn't think that not believing in the Trinity was important enough, to In this case, remove a person from membership, even though he was the one who made the request. So I wonder what you think. What do you think? Do you believe that the belief in the Trinity and and understanding it and accepting this doctrine is important? Why or perhaps why not? This is what we're going to attempt to answer in this series, why the belief in the Trinity is important. Now, uh, Trinitarians, for the most part, agree in certain concepts, or the, the concept of three, although there are notable variations between, from one denomination to another, and even from within the same denomination. In, in Adventism, for example... There are a, 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 at least a couple of, of beliefs, of different beliefs, on what the Trinity is all about. So, I want to share with you um, some of the Trinity variations, of different concepts of what the Trinity is. Okay? The first one is called Consubstantial Trinity. The Consubstantial Trinity is a version of the Trinity characterized as a single divine being composed of three persons. So, in this case, A being and a person is not the same thing. So it's a single divine being composed of three persons, sharing one indivisible substance. And notice, this is the Catholic Orthodox view of the Trinity. So you ask a Catholic person, do you believe in the Trinity? Yes, I believe in the Trinity, but this is the version of the Trinity that they believe in. Okay? There are some within Adventism that believe this as well, this Orthodox view of a lot of them scholars who have been influenced by a lot of the uh, evangelical authors who believe in this. So if you ask those um, individuals, those Adventist individuals, do you believe in the Trinity? They'll say, yes, we believe in the Trinity, but this is the concept that they believe in. This is the version, if you will, of the Trinity that they believe in. This is the first one, consubstantial. If you were to use a formula to explain this one, it would be 1 equals 3. Right, One divine being equals three persons. This is what they, they believe, the consubstantial view. That's number one. The second one is called the modalistic view of the Trinity. And this version of the Trinity is comprised of three modes or roles occupied by, the single, by a single individual, wherein God is manifested in three different ways. So in this case, the Father obviously occupies the role of the Father but at times the Father will occupy the role of the Son, and at times the Father will occupy the role of the Holy Spirit. This is a modalistic view of the Trinity, and I want you to to remember this one in particular, because we're going to go back to this view, because uh, one of the arguments that are made by anti-Trinitarians within our church is that, well, our Adventist pioneers were anti-Trinitarian, and so should we. And that is true, our Adventist pioneers were anti-Trinitarian, but there is a reason why they were anti-Trinitarian, and this is the reason why, because this is what they were arguing against. We'll get more of that in our third session. So I want you to remember this one. But this is the second one, the second one, modalistic view of the Trinity. And then the third one is called the Triteistic Trinity. And this Trinity, the Trinity here is comprised of three distinct persons, But they are understood persons as individual beings who all have the same power, the same nature, the same purpose. Because they are in agreement, in everything they do, there is said to be one God. Not not that all three are are gods. Uh, Not that all three three make one single individual, like in the case of the consubstantial. But one God equals three different persons. There's three equal different persons persons that make up what we know as God or what we know as the Godhead. And notice this is what, this is what the majority of Seventh-day Adventists believe. When we ask that question in the baptismal vow, if this is what you believe, that's what we're talking about. This is the one of the 28 fundamental beliefs. This is the concept of the Trinity that Seventh-day Adventists believe. One God equals three different individuals, three different persons. Now, uh, anti-Trinitarians will argue that the concept of the Trinity came from Catholicism. And they'll say the church is an apostasy because this is a Catholic doctrine. But as we see, the concept of Catholicism on the Trinity is different than ours. We don't believe in the same thing. Even though we do believe in the Trinity, the version of the variation of the Trinity that Adventists believe is different than the Catholic one. Okay, now unfortunately, uh, you know these anti-trinitarians often they want to still call themselves Adventists. They still stay in the church even though they don't believe uh, at least in one of the twenty-eight fundamental beliefs anymore. And they say, well, you know, we church, we the church, have compromised. And so the question is, are they correct? Are they correct? Now let me make a disclaimer. Uh, As as you may imagine, over the years, I've studied a lot over this issue of the Trinity, both in school, uh, but even after, uh, like like I said, studying with this man that was a member of my church, I have a lot of material at home on this issue of the Trinity, and I've studied extensively on it. However, more recently, I read two books that at least in my opinion, were the clearest books on the subject of the Trinity to help us understand this concept. And I wanted to share this with you because this is what, what I'm sharing with you uh, throughout this series. Uh, some of the material that I'm going to share with, them, with you come from these two books. Uh, the title, uh, the first one is A Sonship of God, and then The Heavenly Trio. These are books that I encourage you to read. There are, you can find them at Nourish, at our, at our ABC. You should buy them. Because it clears things up. Both were authored by Ty Gibson. Ty Gibson is an Adventist pastor. He studied deeply on this subject. And so what I'm going to share with you throughout this series, a lot of this comes from these two books. Because in my opinion, it's been the clearest on the subject of the Trinity that I have read. Now, as you may imagine, anti-Trinitarians use Scripture. Uh, and spirit prophecy quotes to justify their beliefs. I'll share with you some of that today, uh, or rather throughout the series. However, one of the passages that gives a lot of ammunition in their mind is our scripture reading today, John chapter 3, verse 16. Notice, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We know this passage very well. But notice John says that Jesus is what? He is the only begotten Son. Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? Amen. Is he the Son of God? Amen. But the logic, again, the issue here is that if Jesus is the Son of God, he could not, while bearing the title Son of God, pre exist together with God from the beginning. So this is the logic that they use. Logic precludes a son from chronologically existing, concurrent with the Father. Jesus is said to be begotten or birthed uh, naturally, then, to be a son suggests a point of origin, a point of beginning. And if, you, if, if, you, if you're going to attack it from this uh, perspective, the logic, it makes sense, right? Jean-Luc is my son. If I say Jean-Luc is my son, obviously I came before him, didn't I? He, he and I are not together, right? He is my son. He came afterwards, And so the logic used by anti-Trinitarians is that one. If Jesus is the Son of God, then logic tells us that he must have come afterwards. Now, the challenge here, the issue here is with this word begotten. As I said earlier, in their minds, to be created and to be begotten are two different things. They don't mean the same. Now, I don't know how they come up with that logic... Um, I, I would ask, what does it look like to be created, and what does it look like to be begotten? They say, they argue, Jesus wasn't created, he was begotten, which means he was brought forth, whatever that means. But the point is the same, he, there was a time when God the Father existed by himself, And at some point in eternity past, he decided, I'm going to meet some company, and he brought forth Jesus, and now Jesus is there. So Jesus did not always exist. At some point in eternity past, God brought him to existence. You can call it whatever you want. It's it's the same thing to me. But this is how they present it, and this is a very dangerous thing, and this is why. Divinity is something that apparently was given to Jesus once he was brought forth. So divinity is something you can give to somebody else in their mind. Now, this is a dangerous thing within Adventism because the Mormon faith believe that divinity is something that can be granted. This is why they believe they can become gods too, because God can give you divinity. This is a very dangerous thing. All right, so the issue here is the word begotten. Now, if you were to uh, look at Webster's Dictionary for the word begotten. It is, is, it is defined as to be brought into existence by or as if by a parent. So you're brought into existence. You did not exist before. And at some point, you were brought into existence. That's the word, what the word begotten means. However, when you look at John 3.16, as you know, John was, uh, uh, was written in the Greek. This word begotten, this word begotten from, comes from the word monogenes which is a combination of two words. Which uh, It's mono, which means one, uh, only, and genes, which means kind. So this word monogenes means unique or one of a kind, at least in the Greek. We see that the definition in the Greek. So clearly, the, the English definition that we give to uh, the word begotten is not the same as the Greek definition that, that it gives to the words begotten because it comes from this Greek word monogenes. So Jesus is unique, one of a kind. So that tells us then that the term begotten son does not necessarily mean that Jesus was the only son that got birthed or brought into existence. And you know why? One reason we can see that? Later on, the Apostle Paul in Hebrews eleven seventeen is talking about Abraham. And notice what Paul says about Abraham. Hebrews eleven seventeen. 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up who? His only begotten son. Now, let me ask you a question. When Abraham went up to the mount to sacrifice with his son Isaac, was he the only son that Abraham had? Who else did he have? Ishmael. Ishmael was was, was, uh, uh, birthed before him. Now, you know, Paul, of course, as he writes this, Thousands of years later, he already knows that, that, that Abraham had already more sons and daughters, even after Isaac. But the point is, at this juncture, when Abraham is taking up Isaac to get sacrificed, Paul calls him his only begotten son, and we know that Isaac was not the only begotten son of Paul. So clearly then, friends, this, this issue, this phrase, only begotten son, there must be more to it, than what we normally define as the only begotten Son. And so we need to look at what the Bible says about this. We need to look at the entire picture of this concept of the Son of God to understand what John means in John 3.16. Okay? Now, again, the the concept of the Son of God is something that we see throughout Scripture. We see it throughout Scripture. Uh, God created Adam and Eve in his own image. And then Adam, with, of course, no small help uh, from Eve begot a son in his own likeness after his own image. That's Genesis 1.27 and then 5.3. So Adam begot a son in his own likeness. So Adam is the first son of God in this biblical narrative. Uh, he is the initial character in the story that gives meaning to what, this, what we know as the son of God. And this, this concept, again, is, is woven throughout the scriptures. When we skip to the New Testament, when we skip to the New Testament, the deliberate intent of this son theme is, it becomes very evident. In Luke's account... In Luke's genealogy of Jesus, if you go to uh, Luke chapter 3, in his genealogy of Jesus, each person in Jesus' lineage is called the son of a human father. So it says, oh, this person uh, was the son of this person, and this person was the son of this person, and so on. All the way back till we get to Adam, and Adam, the first man, is distinguished from all the others by being called what? Adam, the son of God. So according to the Bible, Adam was the son of God. See, what what's happening here is that the New Testament deliberately loops all the way back to Genesis in order to tell us who Jesus is. And it does this by telling us who Adam was. Adam was the son of God, made in the image of God. But now we know, that we know what the, how the story developed, right? Because uh, not long after, uh, sin came in, right? Sin came in, uh, entered the world, and, and really it nearly effaced the image of God from the son of God, from Adam. Thus, disrupting the capacity of God's son, Adam, from transmitting the, this image of God from generation to generation. This is what God wanted him to do. He was created, the God's son, the son of God, created in his image, and the intent was that he would transmit this image from generation to generation. Sin puts a a monkey wrench in the whole thing. And so God, because of this interruption, God had to intervene. An intervention that would come in the form of a new son of God who would replace Adam. This is God's intent now. Again, God creates Adam, the son of God, in his image. Transmit the image of God from generation to generation. He didn't sin, put a monkey wrench in it. God intervenes now. We need a replacement. A replacement that would, that would be victorious where Adam failed. And then the promise, of course, the promise of the Messiah, the first promise, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From there, we move in the saga to the story of Abraham. The story of Abraham uh, God calls Abraham and Sarah out of earth from their genetic, or rather, a Babylonian homeland, and promises to establish a great nation through their genetic line, which shall be nations that will bless all the earth, right? In Genesis chapter 12, that's the promise that God makes. And then in Genesis 15, uh, God calls that promise a covenant. And if you've been studying your Sabbath school lesson this quarter, we've been studying exactly about that, that covenant that God has made. God made that covenant in the beginning, in the beginning. He he made that covenant in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And so this promise, this covenant that God makes to, with Abraham in Genesis 15 is simply an expanded version of the original one that he made in chapter 3. Now the covenant, theme, the covenant theme emerges to view as a defining characteristic of the divine operation as God's plan moved forward. He moves forward in that plan as he vowed to do it. So it's not all that surprising then that when Abraham and Sarah eventually give birth to Isaac, Isaac is identified in Scripture as the son of the promise. What promise? Well, the promise that God had made to, to, to Abraham, you know, in chapter 12 and chapter 15. But now, was Isaac the firstborn? Isaac wasn't the firstborn. He was not the firstborn because now listen to this. This isn't this is this is foundational to what we're talking about today. Because the genetic firstborn or the chronological firstborn is not always the covenant firstborn. Let me say that again. The genetic firstborn or the, or the chronological firstborn is not always the covenant firstborn. See, what's important here is that a line is being established through which the new son of God, remember the new son of God that will replace Adam where he failed. Right? The new son of God may appear, may enter into the human situation and conquer the serpent from within, from the strategic point of human nature. This is what Jesus did, thus reversing the fall of Adam, where he fell. Now Isaac marries Rebekah, and Isaac and Rebekah have also a first covenant son. What was his name? Jacob. But was Jacob the firstborn? Well, you, are, you can argue they were twins, right? But you, see, you read the narrative as, as Esau is coming up, there; there's Jacob holding on to him, right? I would like to have seen that image. But you know what they did back in those days is when a twin was born, they would tie something to their arm or to their leg just to uh, identify it because the, one, the first one to come out that was considered the firstborn. That is the one that had all the blessings of the inheritance, the double portion. And as we read the narrative of, of Jacob and Esau, we know this is exactly what happened, because here comes Jacob later on and steals the blessing that belonged to the, to the firstborn. So no, notice then, the promise now comes through Jacob. Now Jacob, of course, his name is changed to Israel later on. He has 12 sons, and and those 12 sons eventually become the corporate nation of Israel. And of course, we know that they end up in Egypt. So while Israel is in Egypt, now God sends Moses. Moses is to liberate them, and God tells Moses, tell Pharaoh, notice Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23. Thus says the Lord, Israel, what? My son, what else? My firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. So notice now, God is calling this group, this nation now, his son, his firstborn. Now clearly, Israel's not a literal son. Certainly, he's not literally firstborn, but God calls him that way. Israel is my son. Israel is my firstborn. So again, what we see here, friends, is that the position or role of the firstborn son has nothing to do with birth order. This is what we're looking at right now. Again, the the firstborn issue has nothing to do with birth order. It has to do with the conveyance of the covenant to all the nations of the world. Okay? Now, Israel Israel is the spiritual channel through which God intends to incorporate all the nations into the sonship status that was lost by Adam. Again, this is God's intent from the beginning. Once Adam sinned, now he intervenes. I need a new son that's going to replace Adam that failed. And God is going to do this through the nation of Israel. Hence, he chooses Abraham, and through him Isaac, and through him Jacob, and then the nation of Israel. Because it is through the nation of Israel that, that it's going to come. But notice it says that Isaac, Jacob, and Israel were all firstborn in a positional sense or in a functional sense, not in a chronological one. Right? They weren't the firstborn, but they have that position, the position of, of being for firstborn because it is through them that the promise is going to be kept. Now hundreds of years later, the nation of Israel is growing, and, and, and it's now free from the bondage of Egypt, and, they, and they're growing, and generation after generation passes until we get to the time of, of the birth of another young man named David. David. In fact, David is the next son of God in this sonship saga that we see through Scripture. Yeah, David was not, of course, the firstborn of Jesse, was he? He was the lastborn. He was actually the youngest of Jesse's children. However, with David, God reaffirms this covenant promise that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Israel. Yeah? And actually, David becomes sort of an an expanded prototype of the coming Messiah. For example, in in Psalm chapter 2, David sings about himself being the begotten Son of God while at the same time pointing prophetically to the Messiah. Notice Psalm 2, verse 7. I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Notice the word begotten there a lot. So again, yeah, prophetically, David is pointing to the Messiah, but he's also speaking about himself. He is the son, and today I have begotten you. Psalm 89 is even clearer. Psalm 89, verse 20 and 27 through 28. He says of himself, I have found my servant David, With my holy oil I have anointed him. Also I will make him my what? My firstborn. The highest of the kings of the earth. Mercy I will keep with him forever. And my covenant, what covenant? The one he made at the beginning with with, with Adam. And, And goes back to Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Israel. My covenant shall stand firm with him. Notice, friends, that it says here, God will make him the firstborn. David wasn't the firstborn. Certainly not the firstborn of of his, his dad Jesse. Certainly not the firstborn of anybody. But this is a declaration of something that God will do with him because David is the next son of God in this saga. David is the firstborn. Yeah. So you see, friends, this is why we cannot just look at one passage of Scripture and make a whole doctrine out of it. You have to look at the whole Bible. And look at what the whole Bible says about these things. The Old Testament passages are important to grasp uh, the story that continues in the New Testament specifically regarding uh, what the New Testament says about Jesus, calling Jesus God's son or God's only begotten son. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that there are parallels between Israel, God's firstborn, Right, God's son, God's firstborn son, and Jesus, God's firstborn son. There's some parallels. Let me share with you some of these parallels. The first one, when Israel came out of Egypt, God called the nation, my son. We saw that already, and he, and he calls Him my firstborn there in the, same, in the same chapter. When Jesus comes out of Egypt, God called, said, out of Egypt I called my son. You see that in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. God's son, Israel, passed through the Red Sea as they fled from the Egyptian army. In Exodus 14, we read that. Directly after being baptized as Israel's new representative, Jesus is introduced to the world by God. And what does God say of him? Right? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. See the parallels there? Now, we know that Israel wandered in the the desert for how long? 40 years in the desert, uh, as they make their way to the promised land. And we know that Israel you know, yielded to temptation time after time. But finally, they make it to the promised land under the leadership of a, ma- a man named Joshua. And uh, the name Joshua means Yahweh saves. So Joshua, Yahweh saves, leads the children of Israel into the promised land. Well, Christ spent how many days in the desert? 40 days in the desert, being tempted by the devil, but he without yielding. Because remember, Jesus came to be victorious where Adam failed. So Jesus there is 40 days without yielding before he began his ministry to lead humanity into the promised land. And the name of Jesus means what? Yahweh saves. You see the parallel there? Joshua, Yahweh, Yahweh saves. This is all about Christ, friends. The grand narrative arc of the Bible lands colorfully uh, in, in, in the person of Jesus, in the person everything God promised to the world through Israel, God's unfaithful firstborn son, is now brought to pass by God's faithful son, Jesus Christ. The story of Jesus really then is a microcosm of Israel's history, only this time it ends beautifully. And friends, it is in this sense that the New Testament calls Jesus the Son of God, the Son of God. When we open the New Testament, the first thing that we read about in Matthew uh, is that Jesus is none other than the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. So notice the sonship theme continues. It goes all the way back then. So this should immediately alert us that, that we're about, here in Matthew, we're about to pick up in the New Testament where the Old Testament left off. So you haven't faced the devil in the wilderness and remained faithful to the command of the covenant that Israel failed to keep, Jesus immediately now starts announcing repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, friends, God made this covenant with the children of Israel. They failed. You may remember that when the children of Israel come out of Egypt, While while they're there at Mount Sinai, God, before he gives the commandments, he reminds them of a covenant. Uh, Actually, this is a passage that was in our Sabbath school this week. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if indeed you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. What covenant? The one that he made. Right there all the way back right? He, he, st- he started this, gives the promise in Genesis 3.15, calls Abraham, makes the covenant with him that's passed through Isaac, through Jacob, through Israel, to David, all the way to Jesus, right? But this is a covenant. This is a covenant they're talking about. That, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what they were supposed to do, but they failed. Remember, the Son of God, this new Son of God, Jesus, would not fail. He would be victorious. And so then Jesus, friends, Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that he fulfilled the entire narrative plot line of the Old Testament by successfully living out the purpose of God for all humanity, all humanity. Yeah. So it's evident then, friends, this is important, it's evident then that the New Testament writers... Right? They call Jesus the Son of God. When they call Jesus the Son of God, they're not trying to tell us something about his ontological origins. Not, they're not trying to say something about his nature. That's not what they're trying to do. They are not aiming to try to educate us regarding how or when Jesus came into existence sometime in eternity past. That's not what they're trying to do. But what they're trying to do is to tell us that Jesus is the Son of the promise. The Son of the promise through the Abrahamic line, through the Davidic line, all the way back then. This is who Jesus is, the fulfillment of that promise. And so again, according to Matthew, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, and as such, he is the long-awaited son of God who will be true to the covenant that he made at the beginning. And this is who Jesus was. Jesus fulfilled the sonship status. Where Adam failed, Jesus was victorious. It is in this sense that he is the Son of God. And so it's important for us to remember that as we look into what else the New Testament says about the Son of God. We're just looking at Matthew. Well, what about the other Gospels? What do they say about this Sonship of God, of Jesus? What about the other Gospels? We're going to look at that next week. because This is a three-part series, so next week we'll have the second part of the series, the Trinity and Adventism Uh, And we're looking at the Son of God uh, issue right now. You know, again, when it's all said and done, what we see in Scripture is that Jesus is the center of it all. From all the way back to Adam, when the promise is given, we are over here, we're looking back, Jesus fulfilled that promise. It's all about Christ. And, you uh, you know, when we think about the Trinity, I will be honest with you that the Trinity is probably one of the the hardest thing to explain to a new believer because it requires a lot of faith it requires a lot of faith but I think that a lot of times we we, we have gone out of our way to use images about you've probably heard the image of the ice or or, or the, the, the light filaments are three but just one light there's there's many different kinds of illustrations I think they're all for short because this is a big subject but I think that if we keep in mind what the whole Bible says about these things, we'll come into a, com- a, con- a correct conclusion about this issue of Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, which is really the, 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 the point where many people uh, have issues with, and this is why there's so many anti-Trinitarians in our church today. And so I hope that you can come next week, keep your study guides with you, uh, go over them t- uh, throughout the week, and next week we'll have part two of The Son of God in the Trinity in Adventism. Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.